Support this show and all the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 a month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. Heartlandpod.com. Click the Patreon link or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. Our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts, and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today. And also, I want to thank Adam and Sean for filling in for me last week while I hit up my favorite local convention, Geekway to the West. For those uninitiated, it's a board gaming convention located every year in St. Charles, Missouri, where thousands of board gamers gather for four days of gaming. Frankly, if there's a board game you love, it's probably there. In any event, I had a great time gaming with friends and family, and loved having my week off. However, let's get back to work, shall we? Federally backed healthcare programs meeting the needs of rural populations. Rural health care centers are safety net providers whose original mandate was primarily to increase access to care for those on Medicaid or Medicare. They provide primary care and perhaps a few other services. But the rural health clinic program has evolved over the years, and some clinics, like the primary care centers of eastern Kentucky, have expanded their roles quite considerably. Addressing such challenges requires the full force of a healthcare ecosystem that includes hospitals, clinics, private practices, public health agencies, and a range of support services. Rural health clinics play a critical role in this ecosystem. And according to John Gale of the Maine Rural Health Research Center, they're an important part of the primary care landscape. Among the healthcare services that PCCEK offers are dentistry, a diabetes center, a woman's healthcare center, extensive radiology and imaging, a range of behavioral health services, a pharmacy and hospice care center, and it offers a sliding scale for fees. PCCEK has nurses in each school in the county system. It has an event space where it hosts maternity fairs and Easter, Halloween, and Christmas gatherings, and which, in the wake of the region's catastrophic flooding last July, served as a distribution center for food and supplies. And with such a wide array of services, CEO Barry Martin contends that PCCEK is addressing arguably the greatest challenge to rural health care, a shortage of health care professionals. The projections are showing that there will be a shortage of 50,000 or more primary care providers nationwide by 2032, and that the majority of those available aren't likely to want to practice in rural areas. The Rural Health Clinic program was launched in 1977 as a Carter administration initiative. The impetus was to make it more viable for rural providers to stay in business with a relatively heavy load of Medicaid and Medicare recipients and few patients with private insurance by offering higher reimbursement for those federal programs. RHCs must be in a health professional shortage area. They must take a team approach to care. Physicians working with a staff of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, certified nurse midwives, and others. The number of RHCs has grown significantly over the past decade or so. In 2010, there were fewer than 4,000. Today, there are 5,270, and they are now in every state except Alaska. Care for diabetics is an urgent need in the Kentucky region. In 2021, Kentucky had the sixth highest diabetes death rate in the country. The Kentucky Department for Public Health reports that between 2000 and 2018, the number of diabetes diagnoses have doubled. Perry County has among the highest incidence rates in the state. 
So the PCCEK operates the Mary E. Martin Diabetes Center, named in honor of Martin's mother. It's the only diabetes facility affiliated with the University of Kentucky's Barnstable Brown Diabetes Center. It offers comprehensive case management. Before PCCEK opened its diabetes center, people routinely had to drive 250 miles round trip to Lexington to see a doctor. Many simply went unexamined and undiagnosed. In Eastern Kentucky, Barry Martin believes the benefits of a comprehensive rural health clinic to a region and state are clear. Nearly 200,000 annual health care visits speaks volumes. Moreover, Martin says the governor is looking for people like us to help develop a second chance workforce. And that's what we'll be doing with Beacons of Hope. The big picture objective for all stakeholders is a continuum of care, health, housing, employment, and well-being. Rural healthcare centers are an interesting hybrid of federal grants and a for-profit structure, but they're also a symptom of healthcare options dying at a rapid pace in our rural communities. Frankly, healthcare outside of the bigger cities is becoming troublingly scarce, and it speaks to the stark need to usher in some form of taxpayer-backed healthcare. In the meantime, I tip my hat to these facilities and the level of care, including preventative, that they provide for some of our most needy parts of the country. In the race to defund public schools, private third-party vendors win big in Iowa. The New York-based company that will operate Iowa's new state-funded private school financial assistance program will be paid $4.3 million over the first six years, according to the terms of the contract with the state. Odyssey, which was chosen by the state through a competitive bidding process, will be paid with public dollars from the state's general fund budget. The company, which operates similar programs in Arizona and Idaho, this week began educating Iowa parents through a series of webinars about the new state program, which is projected to ultimately cost the state $107 million in its first year and $345 million annually at full implementation. The new program passed with only Republican support in the Iowa legislature and was signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds, who had pushed for similar measures in previous years and made it a centerpiece of her 2022 re-election campaign. Under the new law, Iowans will be eligible for state funding equal to the amount of state-per-pupil funding for K-12 public education, which for 2023-2024 through 2024 school year will be roughly $7,600, to pay for attending a private school. In the first year of the program, the ESAs are available to all public school students, all kindergarten students, and private school students in a household at or below 300% of the federal poverty rate. For example, $90,000 for a family of four. In the second year, the 2024-25 school year, the program will be expanded to include the same population plus private school students in a households at or below 400% of the federal poverty rate. In 2025-26, though, the program will be open to all K-12 Iowa students regardless of income. See how carefully that was laid out? Only two years after implementation, it will be geared to shift public dollars into the hands of kids who want to stay in private schools, not to the kids who are wanting to get a chance at a new school. State Auditor Rob Sand, a Democrat, during a public event this week in Cedar Rapids, bemoaned a lack of accountability and transparency over how hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars are spent by private schools. Comparatively, when Iowa schools receive state funding, budgeting requirements restrict how public schools can spend public money. Public schools are also required to hold public meetings, release public records, and receive annual audits to publicly track how they're spending taxpayer dollars. Private schools are not required to follow these same requirements. 
once they start receiving money this fall from the publicly funded education savings accounts. The only prohibition under the law is that private schools cannot refund, rebate, or share any portion of ESA payments made back to the parent or family that paid it to the school. Sand states literally anything else they want to do with that money is legal. If they want to take it as profit, that's fine. If they want to send their principal on an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe, that's legal. There is no obligation that they actually take those public dollars and put it into educating kids. And Sand says, that's absurd to me. And personally, folks, I fully agree. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for Talkin' Politics. You can also join a variety of our hosts on most Tuesdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports like The Delta with Nicholas and Christina Linke, and High country sean diller's western political updates on thursdays tune in for dirt road democrat with jess piper learn more at heartlandpod.com and don't forget for full access to the last call episodes and the heartland news blog sign up on patreon as a pod head today and once more folks i'd like to specifically give a plug and an invitation to an event on june 9th at 6 p.m at the christie banquet center i'm talking about the st charles county democrats first capital dinner. Our very own Jess Piper will be in attendance as the keynote speaker, and the Honorable Paula Brown will be present to receive the Robert J. Kelly Labor Hero Award. So folks, if you're in the neighborhood or honestly anywhere across the state, grab a ticket. Should be a grand event. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. In Missouri, the Missouri Supreme Court heard arguments Wednesday over whether two single mothers should have been sentenced to jail time because their children missed more days of school than the local district allowed. The case centers on Missouri's compulsory school attendance law, which states that a parent must ensure their child attends the academic program on a regular basis. Now, Assistant Attorney General Sean McElprang, representing the state, argues that the definition of a regular basis means attending school every day on the district schedule. Do I have to go to school every day? The answer is yes. He told six Supreme Court judges Wednesday morning, you have to go to school every day. That school is in session. Now, Ellen Flotman, a public defender representing Caitlin Williams and Tamara LaRue, argued the law is unconstitutionally vague and inconsistently applied. She says the state's position is anti-parent. Most of the school districts are not prosecuting these parents. Flotman said Wednesday, schools have to work with parents, and they have to have policies because they want kids to go to school. Now, folks, this is a much bigger story than I have time to get into, but the state's hard line is a doozy. And one point that the defense makes is a pretty good point. Flotman states, the students that take a day off to go deer hunting with their parents or who take their children out of school for a week to go to Disney World are not being prosecuted for this. So there's a difference between prosecutorial discretion and arbitrary enforcement. I don't know. All in all, I'm interested to see how this one lands out. Also in Missouri, a Missouri man flew to Washington, rented a U-Haul truck, and drove straight to the White House, where he crashed that truck into a security barrier and began waving around a Nazi flag in the culmination of a six-month plan to, quote, seize power from the government. Sai Varshith Kandula, who is 19, removed the flag from a backpack shortly after smashing the box truck into a barrier near the north side of Lafayette Square on Monday around 10 p.m. He was quickly arrested by a U.S. Park police officer who rushed to the scene of the crash and saw him take out the flag. Kandula, who is from 
the St. Louis suburb of Chesterfield, Missouri, said he bought the flag online because he admires the Nazis' grand history, as well as their authoritarian nature, eugenics, and their one-world order. Thankfully, no one was injured in the crash. No explosives or weapons were found in the truck or on Candula. In Texas, Wednesday marked the one-year anniversary of the second worst school shooting in the U.S. history, when a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers and injured 17 others at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. In the years since, unanswered questions remain over how it took 376 responding law officers 77 minutes to breach the classroom and take the gunman down. The majority of records related to the response that day are sealed as part of an ongoing investigation. And also, the families have regularly traveled to Austin and went to Washington, D.C. several times, speaking tearfully at press conferences and rallies in hopes of getting action. Some are encouraged by what they view as minor progress, like the federal bipartisan gun safety package passed last year and the advancement with Republican votes of a Texas House bill proposing to raise the age limit for purchasing assault weapons, even though it ultimately did not pass. Sadly, though, it seems that Republicans continue to fail our society on the whole. We all remain less safe for their posturing for the gun lobby. A Texas House committee heard stunning testimony from investigators Wednesday over allegations of a years-long pattern of misconduct and questionable actions by Attorney General Ken Paxton. Their inquiry focused first on a proposed $3.3 million agreement to settle a whistleblower lawsuit filed by four high-ranking deputies who were fired after accusing Paxton of accepting bribes and other misconduct. Committee Chair Andrew Murr said the payout, which the legislature would have had to authorize, would also prevent a trial at which evidence of Paxton's alleged misdeeds would be presented publicly. Committee members questioned, in essence, if lawmakers were being asked to participate in a cover-up. In this case, it could recommend the House censure or impeach Paxton, a new threat to an attorney general who has for years survived scandals and has been re-elected twice despite security fraud charges in 2015 and news of a federal investigation into the whistleblower's claims in 2020. In Ohio, a GOP-backed state law that took effect in April made a number of changes to voting, including banning most August special elections. But on May 10th, Republican lawmakers approved a statewide vote for this upcoming August to decide on a resolution to make it harder to amend the Ohio Constitution. Republicans want the voters to raise the threshold for approving future amendments to the Ohio Constitution from a simple majority to 60% before a possible November ballot measure to codify abortion rights into the Constitution. However, Republicans simply did not take into consideration the feeling of local election officials. The bipartisan group representing Ohio's election officials is opposed to this August special election. Frankie DiCarlitano is a Democratic member of the Jefferson County Board of Elections, which has six employees. He says those workers are tired of the constant change over the last few years. He says election officials are becoming tired of having to do this. I don't want to make it seem like we're going to crumble this year in terms of elections in Ohio. However, it's unfair to election officials. We're going to see even more individuals probably exit this field because it provides, to be honest, a horrible quality of life for individuals. You don't know about vacations. You don't know about your hours of operation if you have an election versus if you don't. On top of that, the August special election is also facing a legal challenge in the Ohio Supreme Court. And already, groups have started organizing their campaigns for and against the higher threshold ahead of what could be an important abortion access vote this fall. In Mississippi, an 11-year-old Mississippi boy who was shot by a police officer after he called 911 for help 
is recovering after being released from the hospital. The family is calling for the officer to be fired and charged with the shooting. Adarian was shot in the chest by an Indola Police Department officer early Saturday morning when the officer was responding to a domestic disturbance call made by the young man himself at the child's home. Nicola Murray, who is Adarian's mother, states that the officer who arrived at the home had his gun drawn at the front door and asked those inside the home to come outside. Murray said her son was shot as he was coming around the corner of the hallway into the living room. Once he came around the corner, he got shot, Murray states, and I cannot grasp why. The same cop told him to come out of the house. When Adarian did, he got shot. Adarian kept asking, why did he shoot me and what did I do wrong? And lastly, folks, John Hamm calls Josh Hawley a coward in an ad for his opponent, Lucas Kuntz. Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley has nothing on Don Draper. Hawley's Democratic challenger Lucas Kuntz mocked the Republicans' fixation on manliness in a new ad featuring actor John Hamm, a Missouri native. In the ad, released Monday, the Madman lead questions Hawley's convictions, while negative headlines about the politician flashed by. Manhood. You'd hope that means courage. Courage isn't something you can give speeches about or write a book about, Ham says, alluding to Hawley's new book, Manhood. The ad also points to Hawley's actions on January 6, 2021, when he egged on pro-Trump rioters but ran when they invaded the Capitol. In Missouri, you can't fake courage, Ham says. We're the show-me state. Courage is something you have to show us. Ham finishes with one more dig at the conservative author, saying, If you want to be told about manhood, some guy wrote a book about it. But if you want someone to show you courage, send Lucas Kuntz to the Senate. Well, that's all the time we have this week. I want to thank you for joining us. If you feel you have a story that I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at The Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from HuffPost, CNN, NPR, the Texas Tribune, KXAN Texas, the Associated Press, the Missouri Independent, the Gazette, and the Daily Yonder. Thanks for listening. Review is a production of MidMap Media LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See y'all next week.